everyone, and welcome back to Operation History, a podcast where history is more than what you remember. Tonight, the digital table is filled finally once again with David. How's it going, everybody? Lauren. Hello. Derek. Hello. And myself, Maria. In this episode, we will be discussing African women who were part of their country's liberation movements and African women who stood for independence during their movements. We wanted to do this topic this month because, as everyone knows, March is Women's History Month, and we chose to look at uh, women leaders in African independence movements because we wanted to get out of um, the continental U.S. and kind of branch out and explore some other histories that we have not been able to bring to light on the podcast yet. So that's how we got here. So I have talked a lot. I believe Lauren is going first. So Lauren, can you tell us about the person that you chose? Of course I can. The woman that I am looking at or have been looking at for this month is, I'm so sorry, someone please respond in the comments when I butcher this name, um, Huda Cha'arari. Um, so she is a woman that was living in Egypt during their later years of colonial rule by the British. And then she lived all the way up to basically right around World War II. Um, just a quick shout out to Unsung History and What's Her Name podcast, because I got a lot of good stuff from their, uh, their research and stuff on this. So thank you. Okay. So she's considered the founder of women's movement, the women's movement in Egypt. So um, Huda was born and raised in, or raised in Cairo um, in the 1870s. Her father was a pretty uh, upper class um, landowner and was active in Egyptian nationalist politics. So that's kind of where she got the basis maybe from all of uh, what she does later. But at this point, Egypt is still under the rule of Great Britain, and she is living and growing up in the um, harem system. So she and other women are living separate from their male peers, family members, etc. It wasn't necessary to, like, it wasn't part of the law to educate women that were growing up in the harem but she did get some sort of bare bones education. And she says in her uh, memoirs how she was very jealous and upset that she could not get the same uh, education as her brother. And she kind of is quoted the saying, you know, I hated being a woman because it's just holding me back. Now at the young age of 13, she's married off to an older cousin. Uh, not uncommon, unfortunately, in this time period. Uh, this would have been about the uh, like 1880s. 
but she actually lived separately from her husband for many years. It seems like the reason why this is happening is because part of her agreeing to be married to this guy who's in his 40s is that they're monogamous and he was still kind of hanging out and interacting with his first wife. So they were um, living separately. But during this time, she actually continues her education um, until about 1900 when, you know, under pressure from her family, she went and lived with her husband and ended up having two children by 1905. But during this seven years apart, she really is able to get more educated. And this is just increasing her ideas of anti-colonialism, uh, women's suffrage, just general feminism, women's right to education. Uh, during her time um, from like 1900 to when she dies in the 1940s, she does a lot. So she has a lot of different organizations that she find, founds. Um, she is going to like conferences to talk about anti-colonialism and women's general women's activism. 1908, um, Huda helps found an organization uh, to help provide medical uh, care for underprivileged women and children. Uh, they, she, along with her husband, also are really outspoken about Egyptian independence from Great Britain, and they help to found a nationalist party, which Huda goes on to kind of head the sect that was the women sect of the nationalist party. And this is around 1920, if anyone wants the chronological order. Uh, so in 1923, she founds the Egyptian Feminist Union, which is what Huda is still today really known for. Uh, if people have hear her name, they think Egyptian Feminist Movement. So this is trying to do a few different things, which is, of course, it's looking for uh, women's suffrage, uh, also increasing educational opportunities for specifically women and young girls. So to be able to give women the education that she wasn't entitled to and kind of had to fight for. And it was really a big thing that she, you know, was able to have any education. Uh, there's one kind of um, really pivotal moment when she's actually returning home from a uh, convention on international women's suffrage. She's in Rome and as she comes into the train station at Cairo, she actually takes her veil off and she really kind of calls for other women to do the same. So it's kind of this pivotal moment. Um, I kind of just quickly looked at her memoirs, but she, when she talks about this moment of taking off her veil, she's like, yeah, everyone remembers that, but they don't remember, like, you know, the 10,000 actually boots on the ground things that I did, which, you know, it kind of made sense. Um, in 1945, she becomes the founding president of the Arab Feminist Union. So just continuing to what she was doing before with uh, feminism and, you know, women's suffrage, women's right to education. But in 
but so she helped launch magazines for feminism. And in 1986, she publishes her book called The Harem Years, um, which you can find. Uh, there's a pretty good preview of it online, but I can link to the Amazon, you know, if you've got anyone would be curious out there on reading it. But so yeah, this is the story of Huda Sharari, uh, basically just a really badass, Egyptian feminist who really defied the odds and said, I'm not going to take this nonsense of misogyny and colonialism sitting down. Dave, I believe you're up next. Yep, I am. I'm up. So uh, the person that I did uh, research on and I was interested to learn about uh, was Mabel Dove um, Danquia. Um, she is located in present day Ghana, um, also Sierra Leone. During colonization, uh, both these places were under the British rule who did practice a form of indirect colonization. Um, so that's what she was fighting up against. Um, so her legal name is Mabel Dove Tinkui. Um, however, she did go by various other names depending on what she was writing about. Uh, one of them is Marjorie uh, Mensha. Um, so she would take pseudo names. So when she's writing her pieces on feminist liberation and anti-imperialism and anti-colonization, she would change her name up so that way her family and her could still live a relatively normal life without fear of the colonial authorities coming and whisking her away. Um, she was born in 1905 to Eva Buckman and Francis Dove. Francis Dove is one of the first um, barred lawyers in Ghana, and he has he has influence. And with that influence, he allows Mabel to travel to different places to get an education. She starts off in Sierra Leone, and then eventually goes to England to get to further her education. Um, after a disagreement between the fa uh, her father and her, she is recalled back to Sierra Leone. She's taken courses without his consent, and he does not like that very much. Um, when she does return, she does quickly start organizing women, not at first for liberation, but for games activities like cricket um, and houses, women-only events. So she does early on have an organizer mentality and she does work quickly to organize women in a way that is beneficial for women. At the age of 21, she does start getting more into the retail side of things. She's a manager for a couple of big UK industries like Elder Dumpster, which is a shipping company that ships from uh, West Africa up into England, Britain. Um, she then works for GB Olivent, which becomes a clothing line nowadays, and then works for the AG Ledovitz Trading House. So not to be confused with the 50, um, the nonprofit organization that's around today, but originally it was a trading house for wealthy people. So that's kind of the role she pivoted within the first 10 years of returning. Uh, she was very adamant about denouncing imperialism and also the oppression of women, both within the voting block, economic block, and in in their culture. So she worked valiantly in her papers, like the Times of West Africa, um, to really denounce that and to raise women up 
quoting, uh, she wanted them to break the form and live their life as as much as they can. Um, after the paper goes under the Times of West Africa, she does get six other publish publications, which includes Daily Graphic, the ARCA Evening News, and Africa Morning Post, to name a few. The ARCA Evening News is an interesting one because that one's connected to the Convert People's Party, the CPP, which is one of the leading liberation movements in Ghana at the time. It would be influential and very pivotal in getting the British to no longer be imperial and to give Ghana its its independent status. Um, she's also one of the first people, first females to run for a legal um, for the legislative assembly, which in U.S. terms that's Congress, um, and she's one of the first women to actually win her seat. Um, she unfortunately only has it for a year, but she gets it right before Ghana is fully liberated. Ghana is fully liberated in 1957, uh, and she gets her seat in 1954. While within the assembly, she does work on promoting women's rights. Uh, she would advocate that women need more market power to control their wages, especially in certain key industries. She also would lead 10,000 women in a protest of food prices in Freetown, Sierra Leone. Um, and she does some other pretty incredible things and works on mobilizing people for the CPP. Um, while she's an author, she publishes around 10 books. Her last publication was in 1969 with Evidence of Passion. The reason why her everyday career ends and her literature um, career ends is because she becomes blind in, in 1975. Um, and unfortunately, she would lose her life. She would pass away in 1984 just to due to natural circumstances. Um, so while her she lived to 84, so she lived a very powerful life. Um, and she did a lot to help women elevate themselves within society and push off the uh, chains of imperialism. On that note, I, if no one has any questions, I do have some sources. I put them in my show notes. So when we upload this, those sources can be available to everyone. Um, any quick questions real quick before I turn this over to Derek? No, All right. I'm good. I'm On that note, Derek, floor is yours. Okie dokie. Uh, my person that I had chosen uh, was Josie Mapama, otherwise known as Josephine Palmer. Um, she was born uh, in 1903 in the Transvaal uh, colony uh, of, oh, that's a, it's a big word, Pachisfrotrum. That is the town um, uh, of that in the Transvaal where she was born, um, and of course, being in the Transvaal, it was one of those things where it's not necessarily in South Africa at that point, but eventually was ab uh, absorbed and everything. Um, so it was now uh, now modern day Northwest Province of uh, South Africa. So. It's it is a larger portion of it now. Um, she was born to a uh, couple uh, that her father uh, was of uh, the Zulu uh, tribe, but he had um, left the tribe 
and actually adopted a Christian name and was living within um, the the Transvaal colony. Um, and her mother was also part Afrikaner, so she was considered more white um, than the average, um, you know, Zulu or uh, whatever other tribes person was in the area, which led her to uh, have a somewhat higher status in uh, the the South African culture than a lot of other people surrounding her. Due to this, she actually used this uh, to her advantage um, specifically by having the name Josephine Palmer. Um, it was a much more, I almost said Anglicanized, but it's not really that because it's it's more more Dutch at that point. But um, it's it's a more white sounding name, meaning that it. it you know, breaks the traditional routes, but she had actually used both names, Josie Mapama or Josephine Palmer, depending on where she was living or in which area she was at the point in her life. So she switched back and forth um, because, you know, it, it's that kind of idea of code switching where you know, in certain groups, you can use something and others, you can use something else. She used the this this idea of whiteness to her uh, advantage um, around in the late 20s. So she must have been around 17, 18. Uh, she had joined up with the Communist Party of South Africa. Um, which is a predecessor to the South Africa Communist Party, uh, which is the current, I believe, uh, communist uh, branch of government in South Africa, um, which held such uh, laurels as having Nelson Mandela be a secret member of. Um, but she had joined early on, seeing a lot of the problems with South Africa as a whole, um, especially uh, in its idea of apartheid. Um, she was one of the biggest advocates against apartheid and for women's rights in South Africa, but she is not really talked about, and that is due to very, very much to her uh, connections with the Communist Party of South Africa. Uh, around 1929 was really when uh, I had found that she started some really uh, some really good activism. Uh, there was the 1929 beer hall riots within South Africa. Uh, I'm not sure if anyone here is familiar with these. Kind of, but give the folks at home uh, a refresher. So the 1929 beer hall riots. Um, Pretty much uh, the government of South Africa wished to capitalize on liquor, making sure that they could give licenses to beer halls in order for them solely to produce any type of uh, African beer and um, any libations in order for all of the men in the area to have to go to these beer halls to purchase, which would make the people in charge a lot more rich. Um, 
in order to make sure this happened, uh, the police of the area would go around and smash up houses that had illegal stills, um, which, you know, before this law, it was not really an illegal still. This was a tradition in culture that these women would be making traditional African beer. But after this law, that became illegal. So the police would run around smashing up stills within houses, doing raids everywhere. In response to this, however, uh, a large, large portion of women that now had their livelihoods taken away from them because uh, many of them used the income that they had gotten from making beer in order to sustain their families. Uh, they had went out and rioted and some different uh, beer halls were burned down uh, in response to all of these uh, women having their houses sacked, um, which led into a whole discussion on, you know, uh, cultural rights uh and different ideas of you know corporatism within uh south africa but obviously not at that time at that time it was still very much seen as um just rioting you know lawlessness oh how dare they attack beer halls but you know more modern day interpretation it, it gets into some very interesting ideas uh around the 19 40s so for for the that that little in between between the 20s and the 40s uh she had participated in multiple different events um she had married um with a man i have his name down here uh thabo edwin mofutusanya uh who is a very prominent member of both the um Communist Party of South Africa and the let's see uh, the African National Congress. Um, he was a very very big name, and almost kind of overshadows her in her um, actual uh, activism because he is he was so prominent in all of these places. However, she was also in every one of these places. Uh, she was a uh, secretary for the Communist Party of uh, South Africa, um, one of the first women that had joined, if not the first woman that had joined this party um, and had you know, pushed for a lot more women's rights within uh, South Africa. In the in 47, though, uh, she helped create the Transvaal All Women's Union, um, which was a women's empowerment uh, type organization where she became the first secretary of the organization. Um, I couldn't find too, too much on the actual organization itself. I'm not sure if it like, you know, just got absorbed. But in 54, uh, she did also help found the Federation of South African Women. So I think that was just, you know, a time period where it was, you know, focusing on Transvaal, but then it was the Federation of South African Women, which both advocated for anti-apartheid as well as women empowerment, and it was multiracial. So, which was a huge step that it was not just, um, you know, it wasn't just black voices, but it was also white voices that were actually getting in and discussing apartheid purely because 
at that time, the South African state would not listen to black voices at all, uh, which is, you know, very odd due to, you know, its location in Africa. Um, so once once there was women of uh, white backgrounds that were talking out, um, they really had to take uh, the Federation of South African Women kind of serious because uh, they couldn't just ban uh, all of the women that were white at that point because they would be seen as a little bit of hypocritical. Um, speaking of banning, uh, that is what a lot of things happened back in South Africa towards the 50s because South Africa had things called banning orders, which I had no clue before this, but oh my gosh, this banning order is like the worst parts of any type of exile, uh, silencing order, like anything you can imagine about trying to shut someone up, it, it's here. So the banning order, if you were banned by the South African um, legislation, uh, you had to uh, you, had, you had to live in a certain area which the legislation could tell you you could live. Uh, you could not have contact with anyone that they do not want you to have contact with. Uh, you were required to report weekly to police stations to show your residency and uh, you know complacency. Uh, you had you were prescribed from traveling outside a specific district, so you couldn't even leave if you wanted to. Uh, you were prohibited from attending meetings of any kind. Uh, and that's not just your meetings of whatever organization you're a part of. Uh, that includes even like, you know, small things like a, a public forum. You could not join that because it's a meeting. Uh, you cannot speak in public. You cannot publish or distribute any written material. And all broadcasters in the area are immediately notified that you cannot print, publish, or report anything on that person, which means you are effectively, to the wider world, gone, missing, and you will never be heard from again, which is a crazy concept, but it happened to thousands of people. Um, Specifically, this was used to target against uh, the African, uh, South African communists, which were very much against apartheid. So the, the state had used this order to silence its op opposition against apartheid, um, which, you know, included both uh, Josie and her um, husband, uh, who both were banned. So sadly, uh, around the 50s, um, the mid 50s, she really just drops off the board as far as political things, because she also gets arrested in 62, um, I think, in in uh, recompense of this order, uh, because I don't know if she I think she might have uh, violated one of the, the statutes of it because she just kind of <laughs> got, got fed up with the the amount of uh crap that they were putting her through um 
and sadly, uh, towards the end of her life uh, in the 70s, she was only she did actually uh, still help uh, raise awareness by uh, helping out um, women's groups uh, in her local church. But that is the the furthest her uh, activism had went by the end of her life. But throughout the entirety of her life, she was an activist for both uh, uh, apartheid and anti-colonialist rule, um, which actually inspired an entire generation. But sadly, the generation right after that forgot exactly who she was, and it was on purpose. And after that sad little fact, <laughs> I think I'll turn this uh, mic over to Maria. Oh, boy. <laughs> okay. Um, so it's, I guess it's kind of fitting that I'm going last because my person actually uh, burns really bright during the resistance movement and the independence movement. And then once uh, the elected leader gets into office, they kind of disappear from the public spotlight. So I will probably not be talking as long as you guys did, but uh, I chose someone from Ghana like Dave as well. I chose a very inspiring woman by the name of Hannah Cujo. So Hannah Cujo, we don't really know. We also really don't know a whole lot about her. So which is also why mine is going to be a little bit shorter. Um, she was born in December in 1918 to a prominent Gold Coast family. She did complete some schooling and she eventually became a seamstress and was married for a short while. Uh, from my research, it's, you know, kind of up in the air whether uh, the marriage ended in divorce or if uh, the marriage, uh, if she was a widower. So um, we, we don't know. I don't know. Um, but any case, after uh, after she is once again a single individual, she goes to live with her brother. And in this is where she's going to uh, her life is going to change. In 1947, while she is staying with her brother, her brother is a very active member of the UGCC, which was the United Gold Coast Convention. It's the precursor to the uh, People's Convention Party, the party that Dave was talking about earlier. So the UGCC is the uh, is the forerunner to that. Um, her brother is very active in that, and at her brother's house. She is hosting a man named Kwame Nkrumah. And one afternoon, uh, uh, Hannah and Nkrumah sit down and talk, and he asks her why she's not out there, you know, using her political voice. And she tells him she's not really interested in politics and she doesn't really care. And just after one conversation, he inspires her and he changes that. And she goes on to become not only one of his uh, like closest confidants in the movement up until independence, but she becomes one of his biggest supporters and one of his biggest organizers. Um, and for those of you, I don't, I don't remember if you mentioned it or not, Dave. So I apologize if this is um, repeated. But Kwame Nkrumah would become the first president of Ghana. So he, like I said, she becomes a confidant to the man who eventually becomes the country's first independent president. So before he forms 
the convention of the People's Party, and he's still part of the UGCC. Him and five other uh, prominent UGCC members go out to protest British occupation, and they end up getting thrown in jail. These six guys, Nkrumah and the other five, would go on to be known as the Big Six. And this so the, when the big six go to jail, this is like one of those turning points in the independence movement. And it's not the men who come to the big six's rescue. It's the women. And it's the women led by Hannah Cujo. She is one of the loudest and most prominent voices who organizes funds, who you know raises awareness and support and backlash against the British for um, imprisoning them. The protest was peaceful and then it did turn violent, but it did not turn violent in the hands of the big six. It was kind of other people and things that were out of their control. And that was kind of uh, their talking point was that, you know, yes, it was a peaceful demonstration that did not stay peaceful, but that's not on them. They, the, the British knew what they were doing when they arrested them and they kind of, you know, used them as a scapegoat to hopefully try to squash the movement and say, hey, you know, we made an example out of them, but it did not work, which we're very happy about. We're thankful for that. So she becomes, so eventually after this, uh, Nkrumah breaks away and he join and he creates the CPP, he makes her the National Propaganda Secretary of the CPP. And she's really crucial in organizing market women and train and she's seen on train rides handing out pamphlets and taking questions and kind of doing q and a's. and she's she's really his biggest supporter and his biggest rallier. So, he gets elected in, so Nkrumah would go on to get elected in 1960. So Ghana is the first country in Africa to uh, achieve its independence. So in 1964, Cujo is, uh, heads a social welfare program in Northern Ghana and she is placed on the National Committee of Social Advancement under the Ministry of Labor and Social Protection. So her thing in Northern Ghana, she does a lot with education and health and welfare. And historically and traditionally, unfortunately, Northern Ghana is a more uh, impoverished area, a lot of education gaps, a lot of socioeconomic gaps. So that's really where she kind of focuses all her efforts on Um and for all that Nkrumah leaned on her, he didn't really take her in to government like Mabel Dove. Um, I know Dave talked about her and she was also uh, closely working with Nkrumah. And she was also someone who was kind of in his ear, unlike some other African independence leaders, Kwame Nkrumah was really good about recognizing the struggles of women and, you know, realizing that they were important, if not crucial and the key to African independence. So he really embraced womanhood and he was all for it, but he did not kind of take her into the folds of government um, as much as he could have. And then when he is ousted in February of 66, she kind of just disappears, which I mean, that's to be expected. 
uh, it was a hostile takeover. And when the person you're known for supporting is ousted and banished from the country, you don't really have much of a political leg to stand on. So she returns to private life and she kind of continues with her philanthropic work quietly and privately on the side. And then we don't really hear much from her until 1986 when she passes away. Her obituary, she passes away in March of 1986 and her obituary appears in the papers of May in 1986. And I got this from an article and some other sources, which I will pass on to Lauren so that if you wanted to see where I got my information from, it will be in the show notes. I took a class last semester. It was an independent study, and I had the privilege of working one-on-one with a professor of African history, and the class was all about women's history in Ghana during uh, pre-colonial, colonial, colonial, and post-colonial. The the majority of the class was on post-colonial, and Hannah Cujo was one of the women that I studied a little more in depth for a couple of different projects, and what really attracted me to her story is how crucial she is to the independence movement, especially when it comes to Nkrumah and how she was inspired by Nkrumah and she became one of his biggest supporters and then to just kind of disappear and, you know, never, not really to be heard from again. So I, I thought maybe her story could use some, a spotlight. She's a really inspiring woman. And I think what that's what makes this episode so unique for all of us is, you know, we're all diving typically in the things that we don't normally do. And we're doing it for a good purpose, which is to highlight that women, you know, in whatever role in whatever culture or society um, play a major role in its development, either it's liberation or even the modern day. So I think that's what makes this episode really different. It's good that we're we're doing this, doing this good work. Thank you all very much for tuning into this episode. We appreciate all of our listeners and the support that we have received. Please rate, download, review, and subscribe to the show wherever you get your pods. It's a small and simple thing that you can do to help the show out in a very big way. If you would like to interact with us, there are several different ways that you can do that. You can reach out to us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Operation Hist. Uh, you can shoot us an email over at Operation History Podcast. Podcast is including that email at gmail.com, or you can review us on the website, Operation History Podcast, period, WordPress, period com, for all of our sources and show notes for the episode uh, when it gets uploaded. I know Lauren's working pretty hard on other things. We all are, so bear with us as we update our WordPress. And thank you all for joining us. And this is Operation History signing off. Do, 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 do